The following audio is from The Grove Church. To find out more about our church or to check out previous messages, go to our website at grove.church. Well, good morning, Grove Church. How are we today? How are you doing online? I heard you, I promise. No, I'm just kidding. So glad you're here today from the comfort of your couch or maybe you're in a hotel room across the country. So glad you're here today. Uh, Hopefully that Connect Card link dropped in the comment section as well, so we'd love for you to fill that out for us. Uh, My name is Pastor Aaron. If I've not had the chance to meet you yet, uh, I get the opportunity to speak this morning, and we're going to be in Luke chapter 14. Uh, And as you're turning there, I hope you brought your Bible. If you didn't, uh, hopefully you have the YouVersion app or another Bible app on your phone. If you don't have that, that's okay, because we got the scripture behind me on the screen as well. Uh, As we're preparing for today, I just want to quickly highlight launch Sunday is next Sunday. Uh, If there's ever a Sunday we don't want you to miss, it's next week uh, as we talk about what God is doing and where God is leading us and what this next season for the Grove Church looks like. Uh, We are thrilled about it. You saw different teaser videos. Uh, We might all show up in 90s gear next week, so no promises. Uh, Even if you're online, show up in 90s gear. That could be fun. Um, But it's going to be a lot of fun next week, and we'd love for you to join us as we continue moving forward uh, and where God has us going. Um, I do want to take a moment and highlight, we had this big old event happening this last week called our Back to School Bash put on by our Grove Kids Ministry. It was an incredible event, uh, and we just want to say thank you to those of you who were able to give, whether school supplies, maybe you gave money, or maybe you just showed up and served as well. Uh, we served well over, I think it was about 500 backpacks total that we were able to give away. We have got some more coming today uh, to pick up that weren't able to make it this week. Uh, so we're going to be able to give about 500 backpacks out uh, as well. We saw probably close to a thousand people show up between kids and families outside just to enjoy a great moment to hang out uh, and meet a need, but also have some ice cream and and have a fun event before school starts because some of you are already in the throes of school because it's already started. Some of you, it's starting this week. Uh, And if you've got elementary age kids in in Marysville School District, we start next week. And so uh, it's just a crazy schedule, but it's a lot of fun. Uh, And so I just want to say thank you for being a part of it. Uh, Whether you, uh, again, helped participate and serve and gave to it, that's awesome. Uh, We are very deeply appreciative of that partnership together. Um, Anybody remember 2014? For me, it feels like it was about seven years ago. Um, Just kidding, it was seven years ago. Um, But one of the things, some of you may know this, some of you may not know this, I was the youth pastor here for about six years, uh, up until about three years ago, uh, where God was kind of moving and shifting some seats around and uh, ended up settling in the seat I'm in now. Um, But one of the things we did as a a youth ministry is we went to uh, what was called winter camps. Um, 2014 was a very big year for uh, the Seattle area. Anybody remember why? Y'all aren't hardcore fans. Seahawks won the Super Bowl in 2014. Come on, people. I know online you got it, so good job. Uh, But 2014 was a big year for the Seattle area because the Seahawks won the Super Bowl. Um, If you don't know this, planning camps was one of my greatest joys and one of my greatest stressors, Um, but it typically happened around this Martin Luther King weekend. Uh, So 2014, we had a camp scheduled in Martin Luther King weekend at a place called Buck Creek Camp, which is now Black Diamond Camp, I believe, uh, in the Enumclaw area. And there's not good cell service out there. Uh, And as the season was progressing for football, if you don't know this, football is actually starting officially this Thursday night as the Cowboys take on the Bucks. Go Cowboys, let's go. Um, So there's a reason why I'm kind of bringing it up, but it also totally hits on where God is hitting me with this message this week. But all of that to say, building up this, this momentum to camp, all of a sudden the Seahawks are building momentum up towards the Super Bowl. 
And before you get to the Super Bowl, you have to compete in what's called the NFC Championship game. There's an AFC Championship and an NFC Championship. I know some of you don't care, but I'm just trying to set the stage. <laughs> 2014 hits. The NFC Championship game is playing, can you guess on what weekend? Martin Luther King weekend. When I have camp, I have a bunch of leaders that are Seahawks fans. I know there's not many here today, but there's a lot of Seahawks fans that were my youth leaders. So I have my youth leaders come and he's like, Aaron, what are we going to do? Am I, well, we're going to go to camp, have a great weekend. Jesus is going to impact and, and change students' lives, and it's going to be something we come back and celebrate for years to come. Here we are seven years later. I'm still celebrating it. Oh, was their response. <laughs> now, here's the deal. Seahawks are a big deal in the Seattle area, in the Northwest area, and I get it. But here's the tension. This weekend presented a really significant opportunity. Anybody remember in 2014 who the Seattle Seahawks played in the NFC Championship game? 49ers. So this isn't any game, right? This isn't like the Seahawks playing the Cowboys. It's not the Seahawks playing uh, anybody else but a rival, guys. This is a rival team, okay? You don't miss an NFC Championship game against a mediocre wide receiver like Michael Crabtree, okay? Some of y'all get that Richard Sherman reference. You're welcome. But here's the crazy thing. We have camp scheduled. We're trying to figure it out. My camp speaker is Tyler Soley, who's a pastor, lead pastor of Life uh, Center in Tacoma. He's coming to speak, all big Seahawks fan. They asked me, what are we going to do? And I'm looking at the schedule that we've already put together. I'm like, well, we have some free time. Now, free time, if you don't know what it is, it means it's free. Do whatever you want. Here's some different activities you could do. So we decided in our genius to figure out a way to stream the NFC Championship game. Seattle Seahawks play the San Francisco 49ers and that mediocre wide receiver in Crabtree. And we watch it. Now, here's the beauty about trying to watch something streamed online before it actually became a thing like YouTube TV, right? Is there's glitches. So all throughout the game, like some of you watch this game and you're having flashbacks and I love it. It's awesome. But here's the crazy thing about this game. I'm with 75 plus other people of my closest friends. We're watching this game together. Can you imagine watching a game and it glitches in the most like, you just hear this uproar. What happened? Well, that's what happened at different times. But at the end of the game, I'm sitting in this room, 75 plus people. And Richard Sherman jumps up in the end zone. Some of you are replaying this yet. And what does he do? Tips the ball away from Michael Crabtree. Seahawks win the NFC Championship. They're going to the Super Bowl. Now we know they went on to win the Super Bowl in 2014. We won't talk about 2015. But 2014, they won the Super Bowl. It was an incredible year. But here's what happened for me in that moment. Some of you know I'm a Dallas Cowboys fan. And I will be a Dallas Cowboys fan through and through. And I had my, my loyalty, my lead, allegiance tested in 2014. Because I'm sitting in this room with 75 of my closest friends who I love and care about with the pastor who I would call someone who mentored me throughout youth ministry, who's a staunch Seahawks fan. I left that weekend liking the Seattle Seahawks for the first time in my short life. <laughs> I left, and that next week, I'm pretty convinced I bought a hat <laughs> out of my own money so I could wear it on Super Bowl Sunday when the Seattle Seahawks trounced the Denver Broncos. Trounced them. It wasn't even a game. Right out the gate. Now, here's a problem. For the next several days, weeks, months, it was great. I love the Seahawks. I was slowly drifting away from my original loyalty. And then the fall hit, and everyone's starting to talk about football. And I realized in that moment I had to come to a very brutal truth. In order to shift 
the seat I was in about liking the Seahawks to become a fan of the Seattle Seahawks. And then I had to cross a line where I cut ties with the Dallas Cowboys. And in that moment, I recognized this cost, and I did what only any sane person would do as I walked away from the Seattle Seahawks and maintained my loyalty to the Dallas Cowboys. Come on, somebody. <laughs> now, why do I bring that up? Because psychology has this phrase called the bandwagon effect, which is a cognitive bias. And I learned all that just so I could sound smart for you today. You're welcome. (laughs) But no, the reality is this tension exists when we are surrounded by people that have a similar interest, where if we don't have that interest, we have this bias, this bandwagon effect that leads us to have similar ideas and, and, and positions and platforms. And in that year of 2014, my alignment became with the Seattle Seahawks. In hindsight, I then came to this moment of confrontation of the brutal truth that I have to give up my love for the Cowboys, and I couldn't do it, guys. I couldn't walk away from my beloved Dallas Cowboys. And here's the thing, misery loves company, and I know the Cowboys have been miserable. That's okay, I still love them. I don't know why, I just love them. And the reason why I bring it up is because I believe Jesus confronts that same attitude, that same mindset, to the crowd as he addresses in Luke chapter 14. Uh, if, you have, if you're taking notes, I would love for you to title this message, The Crowd Mentality, because I believe for you and I today to truly understand what Jesus is calling us to, we have to acknowledge and recognize where we are aligned based upon a bandwagon effect, not based upon a true understanding of the cost to follow Jesus. So I want to read this in Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 35. Share a few thoughts, and then I'll wrap it up so we can head on and get ready for football that starts on Thursday because the Cowboys are going to beat the reigning champs. Anyways, <laughs> verse 25 in chapter 14 uh, says this. Now, great crowds were traveling with him. This is referring to Jesus. So he turned and said to them, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, wife and children, brother and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. For which of you, wanting to build a tower, oh, sorry, it says this, whoever does not bear his own cross to come after me cannot be my disciple. This says in verse 28, for which of you, wanting to build a tower, doesn't first sit down and calculate the cost to see if he has enough to complete it? Or what king, going to war against another king, will not first sit down and decide if he is able with 10,000 to oppose the one who comes against him with 20,000. If not, while the other is still a long way off, he sends out a delegation to ask for the terms of peace. In the same way, therefore, for every one of you who does not renounce all his possessions cannot be my disciple. Let's pray today for God's word. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity to be here. Lord, I pray even in the next few moments, God, that you would use my words to communicate your heart and your truth. I thank you today that you have a life and life abundant in store. God, your heart's desire is to see us walk in the fullness of who you are and the revelation of who you are and in turn how that translates to the world around us because more than anything else we know, the world needs more hope, more truth, and more reality than ever before. So God, give us wisdom to discern what you're saying to us. Holy Spirit, would you speak? to our hearts, bring the right conviction and the right boldness to trust you in the midst of Jesus. In the name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. I love this picture because 
Jesus found himself many different times with a large amount of people surrounding him. Pastor Nick mentioned this a few weeks back as we were working through a series called Up Next Hope, that when the New Testament alludes and mentions Jesus is on his way to Jerusalem as it gets towards the end of his life, at the end of the books, it's this allusion to the coming death and resurrection that Jesus is going to embark on. It's this mission that God has called him to, to lay down his life for humanity. So in this picture, we see Jesus on this pathway back to Jerusalem for what's coming. And it says that massive amounts of people were with him. And I'm not talking like an entourage. I'm not talking like the 12 disciples plus a few buddies. I'm, t- I'm talking throngs and throngs of people. I love what one of the commentaries I read this week from, the, I believe it's the expositor, says this. I said, but presently, great multitudes were constantly around Jesus because of his kingdom preaching and his power. In other words, what he was doing and what he was saying was so profound and so charismatic that it drew people to him because of the hope he presented, because of the reality that he presented, because of the miracles he performed. People were showing up and following him everywhere. I get the picture of Forrest Gump when he's running and that crowd's following him. It says, in today's terms, there were throngs of gapers, of hangers on with no commitment. And they conducted themselves as if they were on the way to a holiday feast. See, Jesus walking towards Jerusalem with these throngs of people recognized, I don't think they get it. They don't don't understand what's really going to happen and what's really going to be asked of them. So Jesus, in that moment, stops, turns, and teaches. And his grace and his truth, he stops for a moment says, okay, here we go, everybody, listen up. I could envision him saying, okay, everyone have a seat. But he stops for a moment to teach and talk. And he starts off with this simple statement in verse 6. In verse 26. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own mother and father, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. I want, I want to take a quick sidebar for one moment and just caution us. When we read God's word, please don't take how we understand terms and read them into the text as if that's what Jesus is intending to say. See, when we read this word hate, we, we understand and see it from a, a connotation of anger, a connotation of, of, of opposition. When Jesus is using the word hate, he's speaking to a culture that is very family-driven, It's not single family units living in the homes by themselves. It's tens or 15 or 20 of one family units living together. And Jesus is is drawing attention to the simple fact saying, listen, I want you to love me so much that in comparison, your love for your family, your spouse fades. That your love for me would be so extravagant, it appears like you love your family and friends and those closest to you less. He's not saying take a position of opposite. He's, he's not saying take this position of anger. This is a position of I'm against you, which is how we understand hate today. What he's saying is love me so much that it almost at times appears or has the appearance as if you don't prefer your family over me. Here's the reality. We are in the same boat today. Jesus says, love me so much that when your kids come to you 
and they want you to play with them. You don't just throw me to the side and say, okay, I'll go play with you. But you understand this tension of, I'm going to play with you, but I'm going to pray for your soul even more. I'm going to pray and ask and believe God to do incredible things for you because that's our responsibility as parents. As I read this passage, I recognize it's not a legit claim to define hate as we define it today. But I want my kids to know I love Jesus more than I love them. You can't say that, Aaron. Yeah, I can. Because as I love Jesus more and more and more, you know what it does for me? It causes me to love them more. When I love Jesus more and more and more than my spouse, you know what it causes me to do? To get off my rear end on the couch and serve my wife like Christ laid down his life for the church. But it hinges on me loving Jesus more so that everything else in comparison seems less. It's not your license to hate your mom or dad. I remember as a teenager, I have to hate you, mom and dad, so therefore, deuces. (laughs) Mom, if you're watching, I'm sorry. It's, it's not my license to get away with hating people. Well, they're set against me, therefore I don't have to like them. The Bible says so. Yeah, if you read it blatant, blatantly and you read your words and understanding of terms based upon scripture, yeah, sure. You can make a, a case for that. But when we don't understand the context, when we don't understand what Jesus is actually meaning, we're, we give a license to do whatever we want. Jesus is saying, your love for me should be so deep, so extravagant, so profound, so prioritized that your love for anybody else seems less. That means your coworker who set out to make a bad name for you. That means your boss who doesn't care about anything to do with God. Didn't say this in the first, but I remember working in a restaurant when I was in college, studying to be a youth pastor. The guy I worked with, his name was Damien. First thing he said to me is like, I don't want your religion. Now I could have taken offense, like, fine, I'm gonna dust my feet off and good luck to you. No, I told him, I said, I just want your money because you're supposed to tip me out, so what can I do to earn your money? It was awesome, I made really good money from him. But I decided to love him as best I could. Now some people, y'all make it hard to love. (laughs) Some people are that way. Jesus felt the same thing, but you know what he did? Jesus is saying, if anyone comes to me and does not love everyone else less as compared to me, you can't be my disciple. I say this really carefully because I'm a parent in the room. If I'm more concerned about my daughter meeting her schedule, meeting her soccer practices, getting to school on time, than I am concerned about her soul and her eternal standing before God in heaven, I don't love, her. I don't love Jesus enough. My greatest prayer as I'm putting my kids to bed is, God, I pray they would love you more than I ever did at their age. And help me know how to lead them in that way, to help them wrestle through disappointment, hurt, and offense. He says, if you don't hate your own mother and father, your own wife, your own children, your brothers and sisters, yes, even your own life, you cannot be my disciple. He doesn't stop there, which that's a zinger in and of itself, right? He says, whoever, in verse 27, does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. C.S. Lewis writes in in the book, Mere Christianity, the Christian way is different. Christ says, give me all. I don't want so much of your time or so much of your money or so much of your work. I want you. 
I have not come to, to torment your natural self, but to kill it. No half measures are any good. Continues on. It says, I don't want to cut off a branch here and a branch there. I want to have the whole tree down. I don't want to drill the tooth or crown or stop it, but to have it out. Some of you have some pain right now in your teeth. I'm sorry. It's what C.S. Lewis said. It says, hand over your natural self all of the desires with which you think innocent as well as the ones you think wicked, the whole outfit. C.S. Lewis is painting a picture of what it means to pick up our cross, to lay our lives down. The Apostle Paul says it this way in Galatians 2.20. He says that I have been crucified with Christ and I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Kent Hughes, who's someone I refer to often when I speak because of the commentary, the preaching the word, says in regards to the Luke commentary, says discipleship requires everything. There are no exceptions. No one has ever come, become a disciple of Christ and lived a life of ease. You can search the writings of the apostolic church and you will find no exception. You can check every writing and personal vignette during the first 400 years of the church and you will find no disciple lounging on a bed of constant comfort. Can I be honest with you for a moment? I prefer the bed of comfort. <laughs> I prefer to have good moments in God's words. Like, man, that's so encouraging, Lord. Thank you for your truth. I prefer to skip over passages like Luke chapter 14, verses 25 to 33 where Jesus turns and confronts the crowd mentality inside of me, the bandwagon fan inside of me. It says, this is what it costs to follow me. Now, what I'm not saying today is Jesus is asking you to walk around as a martyr. I'm not saying Jesus is asking you to walk around and just suffer. What was me? I've got nothing to offer. My life is lame. I got, it's, it's all about God. God is not saying, give me everything so I can kill you and leave you miserable. God is saying, give me everything so I can kill off in you the things that draw you away from me, your source of hope, your source of provision, your source of peace, your source of healing. Jesus is saying there are things, if we don't relinquish ownership, that will take over our hearts and our lives and rob us from the truth and the fulfillment of his word and his teaching. Jesus is saying, Follow me. Trust in me because I'm for you. Romans 8. For I know that God works in all things for the good of those who love him and are called according to his purpose. He is faithful to complete the work he started in you. Jesus is calling you and I to a point where we're willing to take what we have and open our hands of ownership and say, God, it's yours. saying, will you trust me today? Yes, Lord, I'll trust you today. Tomorrow you're going to wake up and the Holy Spirit is going to say, will you trust me today? God, I trusted you yesterday. Isn't that enough? God, I gave my time to you yesterday. Isn't that enough? I remember when I was a student, I went to a small group gathering. 
And one of the phrases of a small group leader just simply said to me and said to the group, she's like, I've been very challenged to not live on day old bread. And her conversation that moment was referring to God's word as the bread of life, as the source of our nutrients, spiritually speaking. That God's word is alive and active. It's meant to be sustenance. It's meant to be food for our spirits and our souls. And she says, like, why do we choose to live on day old bread when we have fresh bread every day? And I remember as, as a teenager, I remember hearing that and be like, oh, that hurts. Because, God, I went to church. I got a good message. I took some notes. And remember that line? I don't remember exactly what it said, but I remember it was really good in the moment. That was like four days ago. Why, why do I have to revisit? Because we're in a constant state of drifting. Hebrews says that we have this hope as an anchor to our souls. The hope that's being referred to in that passage is the fulfillment of God's promise in his son, Jesus. See, Jesus is talking to a mass amount of people. He's just saying, you're following me because of the charisma. You're following me because of the way that I speak. You're following me because of the miracles and the power displayed through me. But you really want to be my disciple? Here's what it takes. Then he uses two illustrations. The cost of building something and the cost of a king going to war to make sure that he can actually win the battle. If he's not going to win the battle, what does he do? He sends a delegation. Hey, can you, what are the terms of peace? Because I don't want to lose. Let's work together here. We used to go to Winthrop for staff retreats many years ago pretty regularly. There was a house that was on the hill that when the first year I drove by, I saw a foundation that was laid. I'm like, oh, wow, I got a really good piece of property, great view. Man, that would be awesome. Came back the next year, saw the foundation was there with nothing else built upon it. Well, that's strange. Oh, maybe you went through some hardship. Maybe something happened. Came back the next year, nothing. At this point, I could go build on that and it'd be great. I couldn't, but I just thought in my head how good I was. Every time I drive by that house from that moment forward, I couldn't help but think about this illustration Jesus uses. How many of you count the cost before you build? This last year, we bought a house in August of 2020. And one of the things that I wanted, I don't know if anybody else is out there, like I wanted shelving in my garage. I came into about a one, I called it a one and three quarter garage because my Ultima is like three inches too short uh, to fit where they cut out the laundry room so my Ultima can't fit in it, but my van can, which is awesome. But one of the things I wanted was shelving. I wanted to build some shelves out of some lumber because it's pretty cheap and easy to do that. Uh, it was about, I don't know, six months ago, seven, eight months ago, I really wanted to do this, and I look at the price of lumber, and I'm like, what? <laughs> to, to build a six-foot section of shelf that had four levels, four shelves on it, that was about six feet high, would have cost me 350 400 bucks. I was like, I'm like, there's got to be something wrong. Let me type in, the, let me see. No, it's just a cost of lumber. So what I did in that moment is basically because I looked at what it was going to cost me, and I said, I'm good. I'll figure it out. My garage can be storage for a time. <laughs> Ever since then, the prices come down, God opened up an opportunity for me to get some free lumber, which is great. So I have a massive section of shelving. My garage isn't complete yet. But I stopped a decision I wanted to make based upon the cost of what it required. Jesus is saying, point blank, are you willing to pay the cost or check the cost before you follow me? Now, here's the thing. We're not going to have all the answers. 
We have to make the decision based upon the information we have in the moment. I remember saying yes to Jesus. I remember getting baptized at eight years old. Nine, 10, 11 were great years. 11, 12, 13, 14. Kind of wandered away. Didn't like, I want to be popular. The bandwagon effect came into play. I started being like my friends. 15 years old, I had a significant moment where I decided, God, I'm going to give you a fair shot. There are going to be moments in our lives where we will not have all the information. What Jesus is asking you and I to do is where we make a decision based upon what we understand in the moment and trust him in the journey. You and I are going to be confronted every day of our lives with the decision to make. Will we trust God with blank? Will we trust God with this? As I was writing these notes, there's a question that kept spinning in my head, in my head, in my head over and over again. It says this, this that I want to ask, that I've been asking myself all week. It says, where have we fallen in love with the idea of following Jesus and forgotten the cross, the cost required? Where have you and I fallen in love with this idea, like I want to follow you, Jesus, but forgotten or neglected the cost required to do so? See, Jesus is not asking you to lay it down for a time. He's saying, lay everything down because I am your source. I am your comfort. I am your security. I am your provider. He's saying, what in your life? The question is, what in your life are you not letting go of? Because here's what I've known. I've been following Jesus faithfully for about 21 years of my life. I'm 37 years old, 15, 16 years old, where I became serious. For 21 years, I've done everything I could to follow him as faithfully as I could. And there have been moments I've missed it. There's been moments I've stepped sideways. There's been moments I've been blatantly disobedient. But in the midst of everything I know, God in his gracious humility says, Aaron, I'm trustworthy. Will you trust me? And there's moments he asks me, even today, will you trust me in this? Ah, that's a great question. My people will contact your people and we'll, we'll figure it out, okay? Let's get a meeting on the calendar for that. But I'm causing these moments of humility and recognizing, okay, God, this is what you're asking of me. And he's so faithful to draw my mind back to those moments he's already answered and provided and be faithful in me, for me. Whether it's relationships. I remember trying at Northwest really serious about dating and finding the right person for me. I believe there was only one person for me because I was missing my one rib. That was a line I used all the time, not on girls, but with the guys in my dorm. Just want my rib, guys. I just want my rib. And there's these moments where, where God, I, 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 this is of God. This is it. God, I didn't date in high school because I believe you called me not to, so I'm in college now. Here's a girl. She's cute. She likes me. That's got to be it. Definitely wasn't it, and thank God for that because of who I, God brought to my life to marry. But the thing that I've learned and that I'm continually hoping I learn is that when God asks me to surrender something, it's because what he has in mind is for my good. My question to you this morning is what are you holding on to? Verse 33 says this, in the same way, therefore, everyone who does not, any, every one of you who does not renounce all of his possessions cannot be my disciple so here's the truth discipleship calls for sacrifice but requires obedience 
You want to have the fulfillment of everything God intended, the life and life abundant as John 10, 10 promises, the promise of peace, the promise of freedom, the promise of healing. It requires us to come to the point where we slowly look at our hands and say, God, what am I clinging to that I'm not willing to let go of? For some of us in the room today, I believe that's time. Your time is your time. You're not gonna let it go. Maybe it's your schedule. I just can't, I can't, I'm busy. God, I can't commit to time with you. I'm busy. Dare I say this? For some of us, it's money. We hold tightly saying, God, you know my bills. I can't make bills if I, if I tithe, if I give. Where is God asking us to trust him because he is the one that's faithful? He is the one that is the provider. He is the one that is our source of healing. For some of us, who are you holding unforgiveness towards? Well, God, they were wrong. God, they shouldn't have done that. Scripture says very clearly, how many times are we supposed to forgive our brother? Seven times 70, it's not a numeric number. 490 times, okay, I'm at 439. One more time and then I'm free to hold on to unforgiveness. It's not a numeric number, it's a total number. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's this picture of perfection. Seven times 70, seven is the number of, it's this number that releases any kind of measurable saying it doesn't matter how many times you're wronged by the same individual, as we learn to love Jesus more, we're laying down our rights to determine and decide forgiveness for us or for other people. Where is God asking you? Where is God poking at you? Will you trust me with this? Maybe you're in a relationship. Young adults, I'm speaking to you. That isn't, it isn't godly. Maybe you have a plan and a method and you're going where you want to go and you're asking God to bring alignment to it. And he's saying, no, I want you to step this way. Where is the Holy Spirit asking you today to trust him? Because he is trustworthy. I believe in this room, it's a moment of trust. I was walking around the outlet mall with my, my wife, my son, and my youngest daughter. My oldest daughter was hanging out with her friends, so she didn't come with us. The outlet mall gets a little crazy on a Saturday. I don't know what I was thinking in the moment, but I did. And we're walking through this crowd, and the first thing that I remember catching myself doing is I put my hand on my son's head. Why? First off, it's a nice place to rest my hand. No, I'm just kidding. But as we're navigating large crowds, he's not fully aware of the things that I'm aware of. First off, I'm much taller than him, although he's gaining on me. I see clearer What's, what's happening, who's coming from where, who has a stroller, who has a cart, who's gonna run him over. So what I do is I put my hand on his head and I'm slowly directing his head on where we're trying to walk. I pull back slowly. I don't, I don't like grab his head and get over here. Get over, get. No, I don't do that. But I believe in this moment, there's that picture of the Holy Spirit that gently puts his hand on our head sometimes and will turn us, say, this is what I'm asking you today. This is what I'm asking you today. Will you trust me here? Why did I do that with my son? because I didn't want him to get run over. Because <laughs> I didn't want someone to come barreling down, not see him and take him out, and then he's going to cry, be hurt. I don't want that for my boy. And there's moments I believe the Holy Spirit graciously puts his hand on my head and says, Aaron, your attitude, I'm asking you to give over to me. Hey, that time that you really coveted by 
unwinding from a long, draining day, I'm asking you to, to relinquish that so you can go play with your children, so you can be more attentive to your wife, or you can be more engaged around the house. Where is the Holy Spirit putting his hand on your head today and directing you? Because he cares for you. He wants, the, he wants better than you want for yourself because he's a good father. We may not have good experience of dads. We may not have a good role model. But even if we have the best role model, God trumps him like crazy because God is such a good father. He is trustworthy. But to experience the fullness of his promises, it requires obedience. Discipleship asks us to give up. But to follow Jesus, it requires us to relinquish rights, our ownership of things, and to trust him in the journey. My question to you today is, where is the Holy Spirit poking you? Where is the Holy Spirit prompting you, turning your head gently? Because I, I don't believe he's an angry God. I believe he's a God who loves and cares, but operates in a full measure of grace and truth. And when we do things that are contrary to his best, his plan, he redirects. And it's up to us to respond. My son could have rejected me, but I believe it's a simple response to you today is where do you need to respond? I'm gonna pray for you. Lord, today, you know our heart. You know everything we're facing. You know the decisions even right now, Holy Spirit, I believe you're prompting us. God, I know even in my own heart where you're asking me to trust you, to be obedient to you. And Lord, I pray today you would draw my heart and our hearts today back to those moments of your faithful provision in our lives. God, where you have met every need, God, where you have met every broken heart, where you have met every, every need of provision or of hope or of peace. And God, I pray today you would continue to give us your courage to trust you, to slowly, in, in the moments that you have, God, to tr- relinquish our rights by opening up our proverbial hands to say, God, all I have is yours. God, that we could fall in alignment with even, as we sang a little bit ago, where it says that I have come to, to trust and love you, that I'm so glad I learned to trust thee. And Lord, I pray that that could be the confession of all of us as we continue on this journey to learning and growing to becoming like your son. Thank you for your grace. I thank you for your mercy today. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Thank you for listening to the Grove Church Message Podcast. To keep up to date with us, like us on Facebook, follow us on Instagram, or check us out at our website, grove.church.